The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. This week, I am so excited to be speaking with Dr. Michael Knight. He's quite the impressive individual and physician. He currently practices in Washington, D.C. He is an internal medicine physician with specialized training in obesity medicine. He's here to talk about his amazing career thus far. Dr. Knight, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so I was looking over your resume and the list of impressive institutions you've trained and studied at. I figured we start at the beginning. Talk about Oakwood University and the role that that played in setting you up for your career. Thank you so much. Yeah, Oakwood University uh, is near and dear to my heart and really had a foundational role in my career development. So I'm originally from New York City, grew up in the Bronx and Lower Westchester County and went to high school, had a developing interest in science. I initially wanted to be a scientist, but uh, my decision shifted after spending some time volunteering at a, a nursing home and interacting with patients, really developed a desire to impact the lives of individuals with regard to their health. And so I was looking for a program to do pre-medical studies and it took me down to Oakwood University. Now, Oakwood University is a historically black college and university, so HBCU. It really provided a very, very enriching uh, and welcoming experience. As a student who was interested in, in science, but didn't necessarily come from a high school that had all of the best resources, uh, it really prepared me for the real world. And not in a place that I felt that I was being uh, weeded out or that I was a part of, of a rat race, if you will. It was an opportunity to think about what are my goals, what are my challenges, what are my opportunities, and having faculty and staff that would invest in me as a person, almost like family. Um, and I think that foundation was just so critical in my development and in my future when I went on to medical school. What was your undergrad degree in? Yeah, my undergraduate degree was in biomedical sciences, uh, and I also had had a minor in music. So I actually was involved in a vocal performance. I took vocal lessons. I performed in our concert choir and traveled around the United States and even internationally, which was a, a great addition, right? We always want to think about what other uh, interests we have, even outside of medicine. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after completing that course of study, I went on to medical school. Nice. And, uh, and where'd you go for medical school? Sure. I was in Cleveland, Ohio at the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve University. And that is a five-year program with one year of required research that either happens between the second and third year or between the third and fourth year. And so I was, one of the reasons why I was recruited to go there was because of my interest in scientific research. As an undergraduate at Oakwood University, during my summers, I spent time at the Mayo Clinic doing pancreatic cancer research. Hmm. And that really developed an interest in me to do translational or clinical research. And I wanted to go to a medical school that was going to foster that. So while I didn't decide to go into an MD-PhD program, I did still want an opportunity to develop my research a career and research knowledge base. And the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine provided that for me. 
are, are all their students doing five-year programs or was that special? No, all of the students. So it is a subset of the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, if you will. And so a, a small class size, they accepted about 32 of us every year. And uh, we all did that extra year of research. So I actually did my extra year between my third and fourth year. And I came down to the D.C. area at the National Institutes of Health, where I did research on obesity and insulin resistance in African-American women. That's uh, very impressive, very incredible. I, I honestly didn't know that the uh, program existed. So I'm sure our listeners, you know, happy to find out these different options in pursuing a medical education. Definitely. And I will also add that uh, all of the students are on full tuition scholarship. So that's oh. another reason to keep the <laughs> Cleveland Clinic in mind um, as you're looking for options for medical school. Yes, that is a, a very key, very important. Obviously, if you're interested in research like, like you are, that is a very, uh, that very nice program, it sounds like. Um, so, so coming out of Cleveland Clinic, you went on to, so you're from New York, you went back to New York for your residency program in internal medicine. How was your time at New York Presbyterian? Yeah, so I remember match day. I ranked uh, Wild Cornell Medical Center uh, number one for internal medicine. And I remember my parents flew out to Cleveland for match day. And I was so excited to be going home to New York City uh, because, you know, I really felt that my community in New York invested so much in me. When I look back to individuals who I grew up with, who I went to school with, who were not able to achieve their ultimate goals, having the ability to go on to medical school and become a medical doctor was really uh, exceptional uh, coming out of my community. And so I thought, why not have an opportunity to go back to your city and train and also become involved in the community, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So I matched and I moved back to New York City on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I spent three years training in internal medicine with a focus uh, on obesity medicine. I started to develop an interest in obesity medicine as a medical student, not only with my research, but also with some elective time. And so when I went to Cornell, um, I realized that they had a very large medical weight management program, which I was able to work with in addition to training and learning the tenets of internal medicine. So back in medical school, when you chose what specialty you would be applying into, what did you envision your future career looking like? Yeah, so it's so interesting. Uh, when I first got to medical school, I had an interest in transplant surgery. So I even, you know, published uh, papers, first author papers as a medical student in, in a transplant journal. I was ready to go into <laughs> transplant surgery. Uh, but until, as many of you know, uh, you really don't know what it's like to be in a specialty until you're actually doing it. Right. And so during my third year is when I was able to really see that medicine really fit more with my uh, personal goals and the way that I wanted to practice medicine and the, the way I wanted to be involved in patient care. And so that's when I shifted to internal medicine. Uh, also, when I realized that I wanted to do more uh, than just clinical medicine, I started to develop interest in organizational leadership. As a medical student, I was heavily involved in the Student National Medical Association, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So I started to develop that leadership bug. And I said, you know, internal medicine is such a, a adaptable and flexible a specialty that will allow for you to have interest in other components of your career outside of clinical medicine in a, in a pretty, uh, pretty manageable way. 
And so that was also part of my decision process. Yeah, I, I love that. I love because the way you start isn't the way you finish and you learn so many things along the way and, and you're able to pivot if you're accept, if you're susceptible to that or if, if you're open to these other opportunities, which you obviously were in your career has just gone down a completely different trajectory than you initially imagined. Exactly. Exactly. So you came out of residency. I know we're, we're rushing through because your, uh, your CV is just, is about the length of my arm. Uh, and I want to make sure we get every, um, little step of the way. You came out of, uh, residency in New York. Where did you go from there? Yeah. So during residency, not only am I developing my clinical interests, but also my leadership interests. So I started to think about quality and safety. So, you know, New York Presbyterian is a phenomenal institution, but, you know, different institutions operate different ways. And so coming from the Cleveland Clinic, uh, which is one of the top, you know, three or four hospitals consistently in the United States, I saw that things were done a little bit differently. And I wondered as an intern, you know, why do things work this way here? Why are things maybe not as efficient or timely as I've seen in other institutions? And as someone with a scientific background, I know that if I have a scientific question, there's a scientific method with mm. hypothesis and statistics and a way that we, you know, test a question to come up to a solution. But in medicine, I wasn't seeing that. I was seeing a lot of brainstorming. I was seeing a lot of this is initiative we're going to do. And as an intern, you often wonder, you know, is anyone at the table making these decisions that actually sees patients? Right. Um, because a lot of times it just wasn't connected. And that's when I was introduced to the science of quality improvement and fell in love with a process standardized way of addressing clinical process problems. And I uh, started working on transitions of care, started working on root cause analyses around patient safety events. And so when I started to develop that interest, I said, you know, I want to do additional training in quality and safety, but also in leadership, because I knew that I wanted to do more outside of the clinical setting in an administrative role. And so that took me to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia where I joined the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program, which is a two-year program. Um, in the past, it's now transitioned uh, to the uh, National Clinician Scholars Program, and that allowed me to spend two years focusing on quality and safety. I uh, was able to do a visiting fellowship at the Joint Commission, huh. was able to work with our patient safety team at the University of Pennsylvania, and I got a Master's of Science in Health Policy Research. So uh, it was a, a great experience there in Philadelphia. And it really set me up for the administrative roles that I have today. Wow. Yeah, that, that is that is amazing. And so how does that program work? Because Robert Wood Johnson University is associated with Rutgers, if I'm not mistaken. So no, so this is through the foundation. So the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is, you know, one of the largest health foundations in the country and even, even in the world. And they sponsor a number of programs. And so for many, many years, they sponsored this uh, development program for physicians, uh, early career physicians at a variety of locations. So UCLA, for example, University of Michigan, Yale University, and others in the past have had them. And so it's a two-year program that's extremely competitive, but individuals have gone on to become, you know, health department leads. The directors of Center for Medicare Services, um, department chairs, healthcare executives, a variety of, of ways. So it's not just teaching you um, health policy, 
but it's really a leadership development program. And you really focus on the area uh, that is of interest to you. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you for clarifying. And so for that two years, can you kind of describe the, the pay and the workload? Was it similar to a fellowship or residency or, or being attending? Yeah, so I think the pay was probably similar to a fellow. Uh, it's a non-clinical fellowship, so they're not teaching you how to take care of patients. Uh, clinically, you are operating as an attending. Um, but most of us are doing about 0.1 or 0.2 uh, clinical time. So what does that mean? For me, it was a half day a week of clinic. And I was working at the VA in Philadelphia as an attending. And then outside of that time, I was doing research. I was doing classes. I was learning statistics, uh, study design, health policy, um, the way that you interact with community organizations to do participatory research, um, getting my master's. Um, as well as as doing research projects and developing interests. And so it was a very, very flexible program. You know, that first year we had more classwork, if you will. And that second year you spent a lot more time independently developing your project as well as interests. And then where did the other folks in the program come from? Uh, you, you came out of residency, yes. were there attendings, were there medical students, or, or what was their makeup? So everybody was outside out of residency. So it's, a, it's really a program for individuals who have just finished residency or just finished fellowship or maybe even will be in fellowship. And so that's where my other cohort was from. And they're all phenomenal. They've gone on to do such amazing things, uh, either at institutions and in health departments. I'm extremely proud of them. But like I said, it's an opportunity to spend two years to get the foundational training and knowledge, but then to take that and translate it into a career that you can work in to transform the way we deliver care. That's the biggest thing. They want to invest this time and energy into you, but they want to see you flourish in making an impact in our industry. Definitely, we'll, we'll include the link to this program. We can read more about it in the show notes. Um, and Dr. Knight, so coming out of this program, as we continue uh, down your story, where did you go from University of Pennsylvania? Yeah, so after uh, Penn, I said, you know, I'm ready to get a job. So I'm an early career physician. You know, I'm two years out of residency. I've been a non-clinical fellowship, and I'm looking for an administrative job with a clinical component. So want to be in academic medicine, want to have a faculty appointment, want to have a clinical practice, but I also wanted to have an impactful role in quality and safety leadership. Mm. And I will say that for someone my age at that time, it was a little different. Because most of my mentors in the space were individuals who had practiced for many, many years and then developed an interest in quality and safety a little bit later on. And so it was more of a mid-career move. And so most individuals that I saw in the positions I was interested in, which I was interested, were individuals who had been practicing for a long time. So I'm coming in, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, <laughs> a young uh, gentleman who says, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to take on this leadership role. So I was a little bit hesitant, didn't know what to expect, but the reality was that the training and preparation that I was able to get at the University of Pennsylvania at Cornell and at my short time at the Joint Commission as a visiting fellow really set me up to be a competitive candidate. And so I was able to interview at a number of institutions and receive a number of job offers to join uh, their team in quality and safety. I ultimately decided to come to GW, the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., because they gave me the, the largest opportunity 
to be impactful in the mm. space of quality and safety. I felt that I'd had a lot of training, a lot of theoretical work, but I was ready to get to work. I was ready to be able to have the time that was set aside for me to be able to develop patient safety programs and initiatives and really have a seat at the table. And, you know, GW took a chance on me, you know, someone uh, early coming out of fellowship. And, and I took a chance with them to say, I'll come in, but are you ready to change? Because at that time, they did not have a large patient safety program in their ambulatory uh, practices. And so I joined as the patient safety officer for the Division of General Internal Medicine and within three months uh, became the patient safety officer for the medical faculty associates, which is the physician wow. group that encompasses all of our ambulatory network in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Wow, that, that is impressive. And so can you tell us now, what is a typical day like for you? Yeah, so um, over the, I've been here at DW now for four years. I had been serving as a patient safety officer for that time, and about a month ago, I transitioned to a new role. I'm now the Associate Chief Quality and Population Health Officer and the Head of Healthcare Delivery Transformation. So it's a huge role. It encompasses not only patient safety, which I've been doing, but also healthcare quality. So thinking about the way that we improve care for patients, uh, as well as our primary care service line, leading primary care expansion for our organization. And so my day-to-day involves lots of meetings, lots <laughs> of strategy, lots of interactions with senior leadership, but also time to see patients. I, I'm in clinic now about twice a week, Okay. not only in primary care clinic, but also in obesity medicine clinic. And so I take care of patients who need general health. And I also have a specific clinic that takes care of patients who are looking to manage their weight or to achieve a healthy weight for them. And so uh, when I'm not doing that, another uh, hat that I have is in the education space. And so as this is an academic institution, I... Uh, started to become more involved in undergraduate medical education. Okay. And I'm now serving as course director for the patient populations and systems course, which is a required course for all of our medical students. So I have about 170 plus uh, students every year that take my course in the spring and they learn about health equity, health disparities, evidence-based medicine, quality, safety, and healthcare technology. That is, uh, you, you've said the word before, impactful. Uh, that that is the definition of of having an impact. Thank you. And you know, ultimately, that's what I wanted to do. I, you know, if ten years ago, five years ago, if you asked me what my career would be like, I wouldn't answer this. I think this <laughs> is a lot more multifaceted than I envisioned. But ultimately, the reason that I do this every day is because I enjoy it. I'm passionate about it. Uh, I'm passionate about education, about operations, about administration, about patient care. But ultimately. It's to provide equitable care to our community. And that's the common thread throughout all of my roles here professionally at GW. To, to that end, let's take it back. Uh, you talked about making an impact and serving the community back in medical school. Or, or when was the first time that you really got involved with the Student National Medical Association? So the Student National Medical Association was really the home of my leadership experiences in organizations. 
Um, I had not known about the organization before joining as a first year medical student, uh, coming from a historically black college and university. One of the first things I did uh, as my first you know, experience being in the minority, if you will, in a medical school was look at the student organizations. And I said, you know, where can I find a community? Where can I find an organization that focuses on the needs of my community? And that's where I saw Student National Medical Association. So I remember going to my first uh, chapter meeting to learn about what was being done in Cleveland and our, at our school. And I immediately became involved. I was a community service co-chair. I went on to become the chapter president during my second year. And then I started becoming involved at the national level. I became the regional chair and then went on to become the national president uh, in my fourth year of medical school. And that was just a transformational experience uh, for me to be able to develop programs, impactful programs for chapters around the country of over 6,000 medical students wow. that would impact the lives of thousands of people that they interacted uh, with. So during my presidency, focused on HIV AIDS prevention, on uh, mentorship with the Boys and Girls Club, also on developing uh, leadership development for our students. And had an opportunity to uh, present to Congress, to uh, speak at numerous, numerous events across the country during that year. And as a medical student, and it was just so transformational in, in, in turning me into someone who, I don't know if it's turning me, but really bringing out the charismatic person that I, I guess I am, but I <laughs> definitely did not feel that way before I went to medical school. Um, I, I was definitely afraid of public speaking. I did, was, just did not see myself like that. And through the SNMA, I was able to develop into a true leader. Um, and that has carried on since that time. Wow. And as you're well aware, there's plenty of eyes that are watching you and have watched your career progress. You know, some of those eyes are my own. because I remember seeing you at one of the SMA conferences up on stage and the way you carried yourself, the way you spoke. There's all obviously something different about you. There is those, those leadership qualities just signing through. So thank you for the impact that you had on my career, as well as, you know, thousands of other people. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah, I can't speak enough about SNMA. Um, we're privileged to have uh, Dr. Oboe, the most recent past president of SNMA on a previous episode of the show. So love the organization and, and love everything it stands for. So so Dr. Knight, coming out of the SNMA, there, there's because that's a, uh, associated with a larger organization, the National Medical Association, which you're, you're also active in this organization. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So um, I completed the Student National Medical Association. It's a student organization. So once I graduated from medical school, I went on to residency and said, okay, where am I going to become involved? And I immediately became involved in the National Medical Association. I became the vice chair of the postgraduate section, which is a section uh, for residents, fellows, and early career physicians, uh, and went on to become the postgraduate section chair and trustee. I joined the board of trustees of this organization that represents over 30,000 African-American physicians and have been around for 126 years. The National Medical Association was formed at a time when African-Americans could not join other medical organizations. And we needed a place that we could learn from each other, but also come together to advocate for the health of our community. And since that time, the National Medical Association has existed for doing just that. And so I have continued in NMA leadership 
from a resident uh, leader to going on to being a regional uh, chair uh, when I was just finishing fellowship and coming to GW. And I'm now a trustee for region, for our region, region two, which is a mid-Atlantic part of the country, serving on the board of trustees uh, in leadership. And I've been involved in leading our committees around social media and branding, membership, a convention, uh, and, and now also serving as the subsection chair for general internal medicine for our internal medicine section of the NMA. And then, and what does the NMA offer for young career physicians as well as, you know, mid-career physicians? Why should they join? That's such a great question. Um, and it's, it's one that, that I get a lot because the reality is as physicians, we're pulled in many different directions. Not only do we have responsibilities at our home institution, a variety of committees, many of us are pulled into diversity committees, educational committees, but then you have your professional society. So as an internist, I have the American College of Physicians, I have the Society of General Internal Medicine, I have the Obesity Medicine Association, and there are many, many more depending on your specialty. So then now we have an opportunity to join those, right? So in the past, hundred years ago, we couldn't, but now we right. can. So now we can be involved. Why should we still be involved in an organization like the National Medical Association? And I would say that of all the organizations that I'm involved in, which are many and have leadership, uh, do have a leadership position in the American Medical Association as well, where I serve as the chair of my minority affairs section, the NMA still continues to be my home. I, put, I consider it my professional home organization. I feel completely at home when I go to the National Medical Association because I am surrounded by individuals with similar backgrounds, with similar focus on equity and on uh, pursuing physician sustainability as well as optimal health for the African-American community. And I have not found that in any other organization to the level that I have found it in the NMA. It's not just about learning about the the next breakthrough in a treatment process in internal medicine. I can find that at the NMA, but I can also find colleagues who are from similar backgrounds, who have similar interests in my specialty. Every specialty is represented in the NMA. It's just phenomenal. I mean, I remember I went somewhere and I was I was describing it as like Wakanda for a black <laughs> physician. It is literally like that. I mean, you go to our annual convention. It's virtual this year, but when we're in person, I recommend all physicians, medical students, residence fellows, if you can get to an NMA convention, it's always held in the summer get there and you will have, it'll be a life-changing experience because walking into a convention center with three or 4,000 African-American physicians from all over the country talking about issues that affect us and affect our patients is exceptional, invaluable, and you won't find it anywhere else. Done. All right. I'm, I'm going to sign up after we get off this phone call. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> And you won't be, you will not be disappointed. Awesome. Well, Dr. Knight, uh, it's been incredible speaking with you and seeing how your career has progressed. And it's, it's only natural that you stepped off into doing more work with the media and really being the face of different organizations and policies. Can you talk about that aspect of your career? Yes. So, you know, when you talk about being the face of the organizations, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about my nonprofit organization the Renewing Health Foundation. 
that I actually founded as a intern. Wow. You know, when I came off of being in S in SMMA, I had had a year riding high, you know, a year as a national president of a large organization doing programming, doing intervention. And now I was a resident. I said, well, how am I going to take all of the tools and the skills that I have gained to really impact the lives of individuals, particularly in my own city? And as I said before, you know, one of the biggest things for coming back to New York was being able to invest in the community that invested in me. Mm-hmm. And so I founded the Renewing Health Foundation as a 501c3 nonprofit organization, took care of all that paperwork, you know, between <laughs> call nights and, um, and developed an organization that works to empower urban minority communities to live their best lives through health education. And that's exactly what we've done since 2012. Wow. And we have continued to build programming around minority health. Our largest program right now is our breast cancer education program that has raised over $40,000 to develop health education programs for African-American and Latino women in the New York City metropolitan area to learn about breast health, breast cancer prevention and treatment. And have also launched a survivor network that is faith-based and allows survivors to build community and support each other. And so that is a huge, huge, huge part of, of what I'm able to, to be involved in. And then outside of that, when you talk about media work, I would say in the last 12 months, uh, my media presence has, has increased exponentially. Uh, and ultimately, it was around COVID-19. Hmm. Um, you know, as an outpatient physician and someone who's involved in administration, you know, I wasn't the person who was in the ICU intubating patients uh, who were suffering from COVID-19. And seeing the impact that it was having in my community, I said, how could I be involved? You know, if I can't be on the front line in the hospital, how else can I help? And I immediately started to see the misinformation that was going around around COVID-19. Yeah. You know, that got to stand out in the sun, that just gargle with (laughs) lemon water. Black people can't get COVID. All kinds of things I was hearing on social media. And I said, you know what? We need individuals who are able to get in front of the camera and talk to our community, individuals in our community can see and can trust, trusted voices. And, you know, sometimes it sounds very superficial, but the reality is individuals want to see people that look like them on television talking about important issues. And so when I started to get opportunities to do that, I jumped to it. So since that time, I've done over 60 media appearances on all of the local major networks, uh, here in D.C., our ABC network, CBS, um, you name it, uh, NBC, Fox, local, uh, as well as some national news outlets uh, and print media such as the Washington Post, Newsweek, and you name it. I've done in, in different interviews, not just to be there, but really to get the factual information out there. And that has been so transformational. I remember when I got the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine in December, I decided to document my experience on social media. And that picked up a lot of patients who said, Dr. Knight, I saw you get the vaccine and I saw what you went through. And that helped me to make the decisions for myself. And it was picked up by our local station that they did a a whole um, presentation on on my story and, and my involvement on social media. And it was important. It was so important for individuals to see what my experience was when we're dealing with something new that they had questions about. And so I look forward to continuing that media presence so that we can get factual information to individuals 
from trusted voices uh, and to help them. Uh, I recently did a campaign with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services around for their trusted voices campaign around COVID-19 vaccine uh, concerns and use in the minority communities. And that's what we focused on, not focusing on what we call hesitancy, but focusing on answering people's questions so that they can feel comfortable making a personal decision about their health. That's that's so incredible, so impactful, and you're, you're actually uh, definitely helping so many people. But Dr. Dodd, I, I wonder, as an incredibly busy physician with multiple roles and multiple hats, how do you coordinate scheduling these different media appearances? So I am thankful to have a wonderful uh, media team here at GW uh, that I work very closely with. And so, you know, they'll email me, they'll text me, they'll call me if I don't respond. Dr. Knight, we have a media request. I actually just did one before this interview um, to, uh, to answer a question. And sometimes these questions are so simple to us as physicians, but these are things that people uh, need. And so I'll jump on. Uh, to do a quick uh, interview, if it's something that's on video, I usually walk around with my camera, maybe a lighting, so that I'm always ready to go. But when I travel, I always pack something so that if I need to do a, a quick interview in a hotel room, I can also do that. So it's some flexibility, but I enjoy doing it. Good, good. Yeah, it's good to hear the uh, behind the scenes, uh, how you make things work. Definitely. Awesome. Well, Dr. Knight, uh, you know, enjoyed hearing about this Renewing Health Foundation. I wanted to circle back around to that. So almost 10 years that the organization has been in existence. When you started, you said you were an intern? Yes, uh, intern in internal medicine. Wow. And how did you manage that throughout residency? And, and when did it start to pick up? How did you manage the staffing constraints and all that? Yeah. So, you know, we de- we depend on volunteers. And so initially, it was just me going around and doing presentations at churches, at, at community organizations on minority health, but particularly when we developed our breast cancer education program, which was, was near and dear to my heart. You know, when I was a resident, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and mm. thank God she was treated and is, is now cancer-free, but it was an opportunity for us to develop something to address concerns and issues that I saw even with my own mother, who was educated woman, there still were a lot of, of things that she didn't understand or that were barriers to her care. And so we developed this education program and immediately got volunteers who were, who were joining our team, who wanted to be involved. And that's what we've done. I have turned over a lot of the work to this volunteer team. I'm still around for strategic direction. And of course, we have an annual fundraiser every year in the fall on Breast Cancer Awareness Month in October. That's what I'm heavily involved in. We were virtual last year, but we continue to raise funds for programming and doing a variety of work. So, you know, the reason I I usually tell people about the founding of the organization is because there's really never a huge, uh, ultimate, unsurmountable barrier to your dream or your idea to have an impact in your community. You know, someone could have said, why don't you wait till you get done with training and wait till you're settled down before you start something like this? The reality is I've never been less busy, right? I've always been busy and you're always going to be busy. If you're passionate about something, if you want to get something done, find a way. Go, I, I went online. I said, how do you how do you apply for 501c3? And I followed the instructions and I did it. Yeah. Um, lurked and gotten investment from folks. And here we are today. Next year will be 10 years uh, which is going to be phenomenal. I didn't even think about that 10 years um, <laughs> of doing this work. And I'm so glad I did it. 
Wow. Well, well, let me ask you this. How long was it only you running this, working in this organization? I would say at the beginning, it was me primarily, but I would say within our first year, I had volunteers who who had come on board. So it was, it allowed me to expand what we were doing. And particularly when I moved out of New York, it was critically important to have a team on the ground that could continue our work. Thank you so much for sharing. And Dr. Knight, thank you for coming on the show. You've given us so much things to, to think about, to consider. I think for people sitting back, you know, they look at folks that are incredibly successful, have an incredible impact, such as yourself, you can kind of be overwhelmed. You know, maybe you're a, a medical student or a resident that wants to have an impact, but they, you know, your head can spin if you, if you think about too many things at the same time. What would you say to those folks that are at the beginning of their careers, the beginning of their education, that want to have an impact such like yourself? I would say don't limit yourself based on other people's perceptions or expectations. And I know this is so cliche, but, you know, people say where there's a will, there's a way. It's actually real. Every time that I've done something, there's been at least one person that told me I could not do it. Mm. Uh, When I applied for the Robert Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program, I remember being told by uh, an advisor that, you know, I I shouldn't necessarily waste my time applying because they're looking for people with experience and not potential. And I remember coming home and telling my mother that on the phone and she said, oh no, now you're definitely applying for that program. <laughs> um, and, and here we are today. And so that's always going to be it. Yes, people may have their own perception based on their own experience and maybe they were not successful with what you're trying to do, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to be successful. I also encourage people to find, seek out individuals who have done what you want to do. And sometimes that doesn't mean that person needs to be your mentor, right? You know, mentorship is, is a very two, is very much a two-way street and really requires a lot of investment. But maybe you don't need a mentor. Maybe you just need to have a meeting with them. Maybe you can just talk to them on the phone for 20 minutes and pick their brain and find out how they did something. Or maybe you're just going to go to their LinkedIn profile and see what they actually did mm. to get where they are, which I have done many times. And it actually has led me to many of the things that have happened in my career. I looked and said, who is in a job that I want to be in in 10 years? And let me understand how they got there. I may not follow the same path, but maybe I'm going to learn something from what they did. And I start putting together different paths, putting together different strategies, and I get it done. If you're committed, you can do it. Don't let people deter you from something that you feel passionate about. Because guess what? The worst thing is to be 10 years down the line and hate what you're doing. We have to remember why we went into this specialty, why we went into this field, and make sure that the decisions you're making, yes, some things we have to do just to pay the bills. Understand that. But when you have an opportunity to do something that you're passionate about, that helps you go at home and feel like you've done something, that at 3 a.m., if you're still up working on it, you don't feel like you've worked all day, you actually feel excited about it, let that be a part of what you do every day. And I think you will find that life and your life's work is extremely rewarding and you will feel like you will continue to have an impact in not only the lives of others, but in your own life and feel that you have succeeded in fulfilling your uh, ultimate goal. That, that was a word. 
Oh, Dr. Knight, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you mentioned the LinkedIn profiles. If people want to find out more about you, see the things that you've done and continue to watch your progress and success, how can they find you? Yeah, so I'm on, on social media. So you can find me on Twitter, also on LinkedIn at MGKnightMD. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at The District Doc. So T-H-E District, as in District of Columbia, and then Doc, D-O-C. And those, that's where you can find me. So you'll find some of my media work. You'll find some of what I do day to day. And you'll also be able to see some components of my career that we didn't get to get to. Um, but those are other things that I'm excited about as well. Awesome. Well, Dr. Knight, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And and I know our our listeners are going to be excited to hear everything that you've shared in this episode. No, thank you. And I hope that people will be inspired to uh, work towards their dreams and, and ultimately to impact the lives of others and never miss an opportunity uh, to do that. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley.